Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to the new Wednesday episode of the Battleground Ukraine podcast with me, Patrick Bishop, and Saul David. Well, we're going on Wednesday now because thanks to popular demand, uh, we thought we could ramp up to two episodes a week, an in-depth interview on Wednesday and a news update, uh, the traditional one we've been doing, uh, with listeners' questions on the Friday. Today, for our first in-depth interview, we've got a real cracker. We hear from the brilliant chronicler of Russian history, Simon Sebag Montefiore. The author of many best-selling and prize-winning books on Russian rulers, including the Romanovs, Young Stalin, Catherine and Potemkin, and the Court of the Red Tsar, Sebag Montefiore, or Sebag as he prefers to be known, recently brought the story of Russia and Putin up to date in his fabulous global history, The World. This is what he told us. Seabag, you've written many books about Russia, and your most recent book, The World, brings the story up to date uh, in your final chapter when you talk about Putin. And we'll come on to Putin and the war. But if you don't mind, can we start by talking about the relationship between the Ukraine and Russia since the 18th century? So we're going all the way back to Potemkin and Catherine the Great. Can you give me a reasonably sort of concise history of that relationship since then? Well, well, the northern part of Ukraine, which had often been in Polish territory, joined the Russian Empire, which was then the Muscovite Empire, in 1654. And um, there's a very complicated uh, series of events with Hetman Klemnitsky. And he he ultimately sought, um, he was a a Cossack leader, and he ultimately sought the protection of the Tsar of Muscovy, Alexei. And so that was how the northern part of Ukraine first came under Moscow's control. But the second stage was the southern, the southern half of Ukraine. And that was, um, that was a very different story because that part of what is today South Ukraine was actually controlled by Islamic rulers and mainly the Khans, uh, the Giray family of Khans of the Crimean Khanate, uh, which, which controlled the Crimea and large part of southern Ukraine. There was a small community, the Sech, of the Zaporozhian Cossacks, and there were various ports in Crimea and round the Black Sea that were controlled by the Ottoman um, sultans as well. So this was a very different territory. Um, In the late 18th century, Catherine the Great and Prince Potemkin managed to annex this territory. And first of all, in, in two big wars, 1774, the treaty in 1774, Catherine managed to get some of South Ukraine. In 1783, Potemkin managed to annex the Khanate of Crimea. And um, in 1791, at the end of another war, they managed to get another big block of territory. And so these territories were, were not then inhabited by Ukrainians or Russians. They, were, they weren't really inhabited by Christians. They were inherited in, inhabited by descendants of the Mongols and Turks and so on. And so they were settled, and Potemkin created a whole lot of cities there. And Potemkin cities, which he settled in a very cosmopolitan way with Poles, uh, Jews, Italians, Greeks, um, were the cities that we now hear of as the cities of Ukraine. Mariupol, Kherson, uh, Odessa, Sebastopol, these were all founded by Potemkin and settled in a very cosmopolitan way, which is one of the reasons why Ukraine has this much more westernized, much more open, more cosmopolitan side of its of its culture, because it was it was a much it was a very very different sort of um, settlement, and so that's how these these parts of of Ukraine came in uh, under Russian control. 
Since Anne Seabag, the relationship is long and complicated, I know. Um, Ukraine uh, got a brief bit of, I suppose you'd call it self-control, self-determination uh, immediately after the First World War. Then the Soviets sort of moved back in again. Putin has claimed that Ukraine is effectively part of Russia. It's one of the justifications for his invasion. Is there any historical basis for that claim or is that wishful thinking? Well, I mean, his history is very distorted. And um, I mean, first of all, I mean, the essential point of this is you can have too much history. The fact is, Ukrainians now want to want to be part of an independent, democratic Ukraine. That's the that should be the end of it. You know, um, you know, the, the history in some ways is irrelevant. But actually, the Russian claims to Ukraine, I mean, first of all, the first claim is Kievan Rus, which is medieval over a thousand years ago. Um, and that was a sort of kingdom, a short lived kingdom of which we know virtually nothing. And so you have to jump hundreds and hundreds of years before you get to the Russians being again, really kind of a, a sort of actual, um, easily defined Russian control of these territories. And those, uh, those are the periods that I'm talking about in the 17th and 18th centuries. So the actual Russian relationship with Ukraine um, and, and control of Ukraine is, is pretty recent. I mean, if you think that, you know, Potemkin was building all these cities in the 1780s and, you know, 1770s and 1780s. I mean, this is as recent as the foundation of America. You know, this, the, he was a contemporary of Jefferson and Washington. You know, when they were founding Washington, they were founding Odessa. You know, so it's very, it's very recent. And, you know, Ukrainian sort of national consciousness really started in the 19th century. Um, and it was repressed. And the Ukrainian language was, was repressed by Alexander II and others. Um, and then, of course, in 1917, 1918, Ukraine was one of the regions that threw off Romanov control. And um, what will really happen, one analysis of the Russian civil war in 1918 sort of to 1920, is that Lenin and Stalin and, the, and Trotsky, the, you know, the, Soviet, the, the Bolsheviks, simply reconquered most of the Russian empire. Mm. And if you were really looking at it from sort of as a world historian by stepping back, You'd really say that the Russian Empire just continued under the Soviet Union in a di- in a very in a different way, and they deliberately reconquered Ukraine. They needed Ukraine, you know, for its access to the Black Sea, for its grain, for its industry, and for the sheer scale of Ukraine, the size of it. I mean, it was it was a massive territory that people like Lenin felt it needed, and you know, so they just reconquered all of the Russian Empire that they could get their hands on. And the only two bits that really escaped were Poland and Finland, and the rest they they took back. And then, of course, and then of course you, t- you go up to 1991. I mean, I think the key point to understand about this that people often don't understand is that when they created the Soviet Union, they were really thinking about Ukraine all the time. Ukraine was the key territory, and because the Bolsheviks um, knew that at least part of the um, long dissatisfaction with the Romanov czars was that the Russian Empire was a prison of nations. It was known as the prison of nations. All sorts of people used that phrase, including Lenin. Um, so there was a great nationalist fervor and resistance to increasingly Slavophile, orthodox Russian rule. And this is one of the reasons why the Russian Empire fell apart, because it started as quite a cosmopolitan sort of creation. But by the late 19th century, Tsars like, you know, Nicholas, first of all, Nicholas I, but then Alexander III, Nicholas II, the last Tsar, were incredibly kind of Russia, Russia-centric, and they saw it as a Russian Orthodox empire. And of course, that offended all the minorities who included 50% of the population. But, you know, there were Poles who were Catholic, there were Finns who were Protestant, uh, there were Georgians uh, like Stalin, for example, and of course, there were Ukrainians. And so Lenin and Stalin devised a new way to keep the empire together, but they had to make it look like, you know, look like they'd, they were satisfying nationalistic um, aspirations. So they created this quite clever idea, um, the, the Union of Soviet Republics, in which technically these republics were independent, um, like Ukraine, Georgia and others, but actually, te- but really you couldn't leave. And everyone knew that the, everything was controlled by the Politburo in Moscow. No one would ever have guessed that actually it would fall apart and these republics would become independent. So this is one of the, the, the things that drives Putin crazy. The thought that this kind of technical structure could actually lead to the independence of Ukraine and loss of Ukraine. I mean, it's why he hates Lenin. 
Um, moving on to 1991 Seberg, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? The role that the Orthodox Church has played in Putin's rise and, and the linkage between him and, and the Orthodox Church. And, and if we sort of move from that also to the, I think, a reasonable assumption that uh, one of the things that's really infuriated Putin about, about Ukraine's independence is that it went hand in hand with the destruction of the Soviet Union, as you, as you've sort of been alluding to just a minute ago. I mean, does he have a particularly sort of fierce resentments towards the Ukrainians, do you think, because they set the ball rolling in 1991? Yeah, well, you mentioned a few things there. I mean, one is the church. I mean, the Orthodox Church. I mean, under the Tsars, you know, it, it was actually a government department. So, the fact that it's remained a kind of government department in 2023 and you see, you know, the, the patriarch sitting in the front row supporting Putin is really no kind of revelation to or surprise to um, Russian historians because, you know, it actually was run as a sort of government ministry from, from Peter the Great. Um, obviously, it was closed down during, you know, the first 20 years of the Soviet Union. But after 1943, Stalin allowed the, the, patri- the patriarchy to be restored. Um, but as a sort of as a sort of government department, really um, filled with you know party controllers and KGB agents, and so it's remained. So that's no surprise in itself. But just to take up the story of Ukraine again, in 1991 there was really a kind of coup in Moscow by 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 Yeltsin against Gorbachev. Gorbachev was trying to negotiate a new looser federation uh, or a sort of Russian federation, Russian Soviet federation. Um, but without the communism. And he'd, he'd actually got Ukraine's agreement. But Yeltsin's coup, in effect, kind of broke up the Soviet Union, accelerated things. And the Ukrainians and Belarusians embraced it. And, just, and so the Soviet Union fell apart. And the 15 republics all became fully independent countries. Now, some of them had never been independent countries at all. And some of them were ancient kingdoms. Um, so, for example, you know, Belarus, there'd never been a Belarusian country before kingdom. I mean, it had been part of um, the Lithuanian Polish Commonwealth for, you know, for most of its history. And um, but on the other hand, Georgia had been an ancient kingdom. You know, one of the great kingdoms had ruled the whole Caucasus in, in the 13th century, in, you know, 12th and the 13th century under Queen Tamara, another you know, great monarch. So some of these countries had, had deep histories. Ukraine was somewhere in between. There'd been the Hetmanate, um, there'd been an independent Ukraine in various, under about five different regimes in, in, during the Russian Civil War. And um, anyway, now it became independent. And to be honest, for the sort of first, let's see, 91 to, you know, and uh, the first 20 years, I think Ukraine struggled, you know, with, with misgovernance, with corruption. You know, there was extreme right wing uh, support, all sorts of, there were all sorts of problems with that country. And in some ways, Putin's aggression has reinforced Ukrainian national consciousness in, a, in, in exactly the way he didn't want it to happen. We look at Putin now, uh, you know, he's described as a dictator, authoritarian. Does he fit into the long line of sort of hard men running Russia, would you say, Seabag, or is he, is he a departure from all of that? No, he really does fit in. I mean, obviously, there are huge differences um, in structure um, today. I mean, you know, you have um, a huge legislature, you have elections, you have a presidency. Um, all of these things are different. And, um, and, and in some ways, these are all copies of, you know, American, the American presidency. And it's now unacceptable to have a state that doesn't have at least the illusion of elections and a, and a sort of parliament, um, which I suppose is, is something, in the, uh, some step in the right direction. I mean, but, you know, even China has that. Even North Korea has that, you know. So that's the influence of the American success in World War II and our, you know afterwards that all these countries have that structure. But actually, I mean, I call these cosplay democracies because everyone knows that the, the Russian state at the moment is a sort of monarchy or at least a one a one man state, and um, one man matters in it. And so Putin really does fit in very much with 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 the tradition of you know, Russian rulers of Rus- Russian autocracy. Um, I think that he's he's curiously kind of apolitical in the sense that, or unideological in the sense that, you know, he doesn't really, um, when he looks at the history, um, differentiate between communist leaders and, and, mon- and 
you know, the monarchs of the, the Romanov dynasty um, or the Rurikid dynasty. He, he just looks at success and the way that they promoted the Russian nation. So he just sort of analyzes it in a kind of vaguely nationalistic way. So he's an admirer of, he's an admirer of Peter the Great, for example, but despises Lenin, but loves Stalin. So, you know, all of these, this is, this might seem contradictory to those of us kind of brought up under the Cold War, but actually things have moved on since then. Um, he's constantly channeling a mixture of the Romanov, the Romanov emperors, the successful ones, and the successful general secretaries of the, of the Communist Party. And of course, Stalin is, is the only really successful one. And he's more than just successful. I mean, he's the most successful Russian ruler of the last 200 years or more. Um, you know, I mean, whatever his faults and, you know, whatever his crimes, which are totally unacceptable. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, he, he expanded a Russian empire right into Eastern Europe, um, left a nuclear industrialized power, created industry that could outproduce Nazi Germany uh, massively. But the costs were, were appalling, obviously. So, and, and to be honest, Putin recognize, you know, recognizes that. He has said, you know, Stalin was a superb manager and war leader, but, you know, the costs, um, the terror was unacceptable. So he's kind of combining those two different paradigms, Romanov monarch, general secretary, war leader, Stalin. Yeah, it's interesting that you you set Putin and Putin's aspirations, which is a greater Russia. I mean, let's not beat around the bush here. I mean, these are these are imperialistic tendencies that sit very oddly with the world we're in. And when we think about the culture wars now, Seabag, and the fact that, you know, you can't even refer to the British Empire, for example, unless you're being hypercritical of it. That, you know, certain liberal circles would 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 insist on that. And yet you've got a, a powerful modern state that is making no bones about what it wants to achieve. Of course, it's covering this all of this up just as Hitler did by saying, well, this is, you know, this is irredentist. This is, we're trying to get the family of Russians together. But, you know, we could say the same about Britons, couldn't we? And, you know, we want to take the USA back under our wing. I mean, it's kind of, kind of ludicrous justification. But to try and make sense of all of this, how do we understand the Russian fear or paranoia of the outside world sort of infiltrating or at least uh, moving into its territory. Is there something in that going all the way back to the, the princes of Muscovy's uh, sea bag that you need to create this kind of buffer zone? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think first of all, the, you know, the, the Russian state has only really existed as a sort of imperial um, project. I mean, it was created by Peter the Great. Then, you know, before then, it was, the, it was the Duchy of Muscovy, of Moscow, and Peter the Great renamed it rebranded it really he called himself imperator or emperor and he renamed it he took a sort of greek grecian hellenized word and made russia which was which was a new um which was a new word which was an adaption of rus of course but it was a new concept and it was based on expansion and it expanded so successfully and and though kind of traditionally we always regard the sort of romanov dynasty as terribly sad and we think of nicholas ii Actually, it was the, they are the most successful dynasty, power dynasty of, the, of modern times. And of course, they ended up ruling um, a sixth of the world's surface. And, you know, Russia has never really got over that success. And success is often for states a, a cul-de-sac. Um, it's impossible to move beyond it. And that's sort of what's happened um, with, with, with Russia in the sense that it's never got over the fact that it is a. It's been a sort of an imperial project under Stalin. Stalin described himself as a czar, and you know regularly compared you know his his gains to what the czars had had. So he was very aware of that. And of course, by the end of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union had become almost a sort of a sort of another version of Russia and Russian Empire or Russian state. Then there was a short period of disorder under Yeltsin, and then Putin. Um, has tried to restore it. And, you know, so he's he's never moved beyond Russian Empire. And I know from my own dealings with this regime, and, you know, when I was writing Catherine the Great and Potemkin, that, you know, they were always fascinated with getting back Ukraine and Crimea. Um, Crimea always had a special role. You know, Potemkin founded there the Russian fleet, the Russian Black Sea fleet. There was no, just as Peter the Great founded the Baltic fleet in the north and with Petersburg, um, Potemkin founded the Black Sea Fleet, consciously um, emulating Peter the Great, and and he founded a base for it at Sebastopol. So Sebastopol has always played a sort of special role 
and has and, and so the, when when Putin mentions Crimea, he always mentions Sebastopol because it's Sebastopol, the naval base, that really has um, this sort of special this special link to Russian nationalism. But I mean, part of this reflects um, the fact that you know Russia has no kind of natural borders. And Russia has always been invaded, and you've got these massive invasions throughout Russian history. I mean, the biggest one was the most successful one was from the east, where the Mongols just the Mongols took Russia um, in the 13th century and ruled it for sort of 200 years. And and in fact, you know, Russia's always kind of one always mentions Byzantium and the Byzantine um, succession and the fact that Russian Tsars started to promote Moscovy and Moscow as the Third Rome and all that. But actually, I always, I've always thought that the, the Mongol influence is much bigger and more important. And first of all, as that invasion, and secondly, as a definition of power and, uh, and the sovereign. And people like Ivan the Terrible, their court was filled with Mongol princes. They converted to, they converted to orthodoxy, but they brought with them the concept of an absolute monarchy without, without boundaries. And so... Then you look through Russian history, you have these invasions, these huge land invasions, um, you know, by the Swedes, by Napoleon, by Hitler. And so you get you get a sense of this vast steppe plan, this vast landmass of Eurasia with no boundaries that, that European powers can invade. And from that, you get some of the um, some of the sense of, of insecurity and fear of Western culture. I mean, if you look at the great great reformers like Peter the Great, you know, he's always referred to as, you know, he wanted to get, he, he was pro-European, he was in the Enlightenment. No, not really. His, his, his political concepts were not at all enlightened. He just wanted the technology of the West, which is quite a different thing. When we constantly um, misunderstand what Russian reformers are about, they normally just want, they want European Western technology um, in order to promote Eastern um, despotism, and that's sort of that's very much how Putin's turned out as well. And it's interesting. It's interesting to talk about when you talk about the insecurity, because of course there's a great cultural insecurity, um, and there's always this great conflict between you know Westerners and Easterners, Slavophiles versus sort of enlightened Europeans um, that's never been quite sorted out. And every every regime, including Putin's, has a lot of factions of both sides. Though obviously Putin is now. I mean, his regime has now gone Eastern and has been, um, he's made his choice and he's embraced decisively Eastern despotism and what he calls the Russian world. Um, but an interesting thing about Russian autocracy or dictatorship is that from the West, we just see these kind of om, you know, omnipotent um, dictators who fear and appall us for all sorts of reasons. But of course, Another angle is to look at it also from the Russian point of view and from the point of view of the dictator. And though he has absolute power, his position is very insecure too. And a system with no rules, and particularly no rules of succession, is a very insecure one for the ruler. And you see that all the time from Putin's behavior. He constantly promotes deeply inefficient people just because they're loyal. He's created a huge the Rosgardia, the, the Russian guard of sort of, I think, three or 300,000 men, which is sort of a palace guard. And he can trust nobody. I mean, it's interesting that when he launched this invasion, he told about three people. And hence, you have that great scene talking of the history, Saul, when at the day before the invasion, all these oligarchs and ministers were saying, who's advising him? You know, he's going to invade. We, we, we've just discovered he's going to invade Ukraine tomorrow. Who's advising him? And the foreign minister, you know, Lavrov says, He's only got three advisors, Ivan the Terrible, um, Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, which tells us a lot. Well, that was full of extraordinary insights and really thought provoking stuff. So do join us in part two to hear the rest of our interview with Seabag. Welcome back to the second part of our wide-ranging interview with Simon Sebag Montefiore. We asked him why Putin invaded Ukraine in 2022 when he was getting a lot of what he wanted in the region by diplomatic means alone. This was his response. 
Well, I don't think he was. I mean, obviously, a fallback view was was that he could sort of prevent Ukraine ever really developing as a state without controlling it. That's not really what he wants. What he really wants is Ukraine as part of as part of great, you know, greater Russia. And in in 2014, you could argue that he really missed a trick. I suspect a lot of this is completely speculation, of course. A what if, if you like. But I suspect that if he'd taken the whole of Ukraine in 2014, he might have got away with it in a way that he, it's impossible now. I mean, partly because Ukraine had no military presence really then in 2014. I mean, it very nearly collapsed. And secondly, you know, the West was very unsure what to do about Crimea and actually did nothing about Crimea. Would they have done more about the whole of Ukraine? I'm not sure. I think he might have got away with it. And he must kick, he must have kicked, looking at it from his point of view, he must have kicked himself that he didn't do more then. Um, cause he got Crimea, you know, he, yes, he took Crimea and he sent sort of, sort of paramilitaries and, and sort of, um, unmarked Russian military into the Donbass and into the East. And he very nearly, they very nearly broke through and he must have deeply regretted that they, but they weren't prepared. But the, one of the reasons he didn't was because the, the Russian military wasn't yet ready. The rearmament of Russia wasn't yet ready. But nonetheless, probably he could have taken it then. And that was the greatest mistake of his career. Um, and also remember that he had, he had Yanukovych then, who'd been just been thrown out. But Yanukovych had been elected president of, of Ukraine. So he actually had a legit, he could say he was putting back he was restoring the legitimate, a democratically elected president of Ukraine. So, he, so the West would have been very confused about what to do about that in 14. Um, but by 2022, it was clear that actually that hadn't worked. You know, the, the, the war in Eastern, in Donbass was kind of frozen. You know, Ukraine was actually moving, was moving towards the West again. And so he might lose the whole thing again. And I think in COVID, he sat down with a very small group of people um, Patrushev, Kovalchuk, a few others, um, Shoigu, the, the defense minister, probably. And he just sort of talked about this and he read endless history books, but only history books that confirmed his view, of course. <laughs> Including your Seabag. He must, he must have read some of Seabag read Well, he's read, he has read My Catherine the Great and Potemkin. That's the, I think that's the only one he's read, actually. But the point about Catherine the Great and Potemkin is that. I mean, they were they, they were imperialists for sure, and there's no you know there's no getting around that they were avid imperialists, but they were also children of the Enlightenment. They were humane. They were cosmopolitan. They really would have hated um, Putin's rather dreary, ultra nationalist, narrow, narrow minded, and very chauvinistic worldview. So they, they they wouldn't have appreciated it. But they've become tools in Putin's. Um, sort of ideological arsenal, if you like, which is and and actually, um, Potemkin's body has been stolen by by um, by Putin from from Kherson Cathedral, where he lies, from the Saint Catherine's Kherson, and has been taken to Russia. So bodies have a have a great historical uh, value in some ways. But anyway, I think that in 2022, after COVID, I think he saw a um, a conjunction of um, events that he thought gave him a unique opportunity to reverse this. Um, I mean, you've just got to look at the world. I mean, you know, there was a president, there was a seemingly decrepit president in, in America. Um, America just fled pathetically from, from Kabul and been humiliated. NATO had lost, you know, was brain dead, said Macron. The EU had broken up Britain, most, the most important country in the EU, you could argue, certainly militarily, had just left the EU. And then you've got to look at Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine was still bedeviled with corruption and misgovernance, still divided. And they had just elected, you know, what Andrei Kirkov, the, um, the Ukrainian novelist, called, called the Ukrainian Benny Hill as president. You know, they had literally um, elected a clown as president, which to Putin must have seemed like, I mean, who are you kidding here? You know, this, this state, is this, is this is not a legitimate state at all. And they've they've elected a comedian as president. They've elected a comedian because the state itself is a comedy, and it will collapse easily. And so that's why I think that's why he felt there was a sort of conjunction of events and circumstances that were unique chance. And he was obsessed all the time with how will history remember me. So that's why he made that decision, and he was he was proved 
totally wrong. And of course, you know, the military campaign failed instantly. You know, within within a week, it was it was it was bogged down, and in Kiev didn't fall. And also, he t- hugely overestimated, you know, Russian Russian military power. I mean, he'd had great successes. I mean, that's the interesting thing. I mean, he had a sense that he was kind of was unstoppable, was invincible. But you know, the triumphs were very minor. You know, I mean, beat can, you know beating the Chechens. That's the first one. You know, but that's that's not that's not like fighting a Westernized opponent. And he'd use absolutely brutal tactics against civilians to win that that war. Then 2008, Georgia, you know, the Georgian army, defeating the Georgia, for Russia to defeat the Georgian army, I mean, they, they actually struggled to defeat the Georgian army in 2008. Then Syria, again, you know, just air power, taking ownership of a sort of a ruined Arab country with a civil war, um, again, gave an illusion of sort of military glory, but actually not really challenging not not really a challenge a challenge for for Russia and then of course you know the eastern ukraine uh, you know, irregular you know, fighting irregulars and fighting a country that barely had a a, a military but the, the decisive um effect of 2014 was that ukraine began began to have a real um sense of it, of its statehood and its nas- nationality and its military started to build and develop and started to arm and so you know by 2022 Ukraine had a very impressive military. As an observer, Seabag, if we go back just over a year to um, uh, what we thought, or certainly what I thought was a lot of saber rattling uh, by the Russians to, you know, to influence events in in Ukraine, were you already at that point beginning to think this is quite serious, actually? I can see reasons why this invasion is going to take place. I mean, I began to sort of, I mean, I was one of the people who began began to think that he actually would invade. And the, the reason was history, um, which is why it's worth talking about the history here. Because, you know, when he wrote the, he wrote an essay about Ukraine. And of course, I read that very carefully, just as, and it had a lot of stuff about Catherine the Great and Peter the Great and Nicholas I and all that sort of stuff. And also about the creation of the Soviet Union in the, in the early 1920s. But when I read that, I realized like, Putin actually believes that Ukraine is not a state, is not a people, and that you know he wanted to he wanted to own it hook, line, and sinker. You know he wanted to add it, but he wanted to restore the imperium, and and so I began to sort of think, actually, this is this is a manifesto for invasion, and you know a lot of people in England were very deluded about in, the role of England in in you know in Russia in the Russian mentality. I mean, the number of people who said like, especially in London, especially the sort of the elite in England, the number of people who said, but, you know, they'll never do it because they like our, you know, boarding schools and they like coming to London and shopping and having houses in Chelsea. And I always said like, well, yeah, that's what you think is terribly important about England. But actually what they think is important, I mean, the ruling clique is keeping control of Russia and the idea of Russia and, you know, maintaining their rule there. And that's what they think is important. You know, they're not so interested in whether their children go to Eton or not. And so I was always kind of, I was always very suspicious of that viewpoint. And when he started to talk about the history, I began to think, this is the real thing. This is going to happen. And I did have a sort of, I did have a long knowledge of that. Because when I, when I wrote Catherine the Great and Potemkin, in, in two, when it was published in 2000, I was contacted by Putin's people. And I did have contact with them. And Putin did read the book. And he, they did ask me, to prepare a sort of one pager about how the story of how Catherine Potemkin annexed Crimea and took South Ukraine. So I realized that this was something that was really important to him even then. And that was a time when George Bush and Tony Blair were, were telling us how liberal and trustworthy and humanitarian Vladimir Putin was. So yeah, I always, I, I always thought an invasion, a full scale invasion was really possible. We're one year into the war, Seabag, now, and it hasn't gone well, as you've already pointed out. Do the manifest inadequacies of the Russian military that we've seen over the course of the last year, does that surprise you? Or has the you know Russian military capability always been a bit of a paper tiger, always been more vaunted than it actually is? Well, actually, it's always been formidable in the sense that it's got an amazing mass of cannon fodder, I'm afraid, of people... You know, to be sent into the battle, and the, its rulers have always had an incredibly cavalier, negligent, careless um, approach 
um, to people. I mean, the great sort of Russian commanders, very few of them have had any respect for human lives at all. But in fact, you know, a couple, Potemkin and Kutuzov, are two very unusual characters. And actually, Kutuzov, um, who was the commander, the supreme commander in 1812, you know, famously in War and Peace. But they are the only two I can think of who really actually um, went to great inconvenience in order to preserve the lives of their of their soldiers under political pressure not to do so. So they are, they are unusual. And of course, Kutuzov was a protege of Potemkin. Um, and they really believed in trying to save the lives of Russian peasant soldiers. But virtually everybody else didn't give a, didn't give a fig historically. So that's one part of it. The second part of it is that over time, Russia's always been very slow to get itself together. I mean, you only have to look at, I mean, Peter the Great, who Putin's reading a lot about now. I mean, you know, he was initially defeated in the Great Northern War, not in the Battle of Narva, humiliated. It took him, you know, it took him eight years to win the Battle of Poltava, where he commanded himself. And um, that was an extraordinary achievement because he beat the Swedes in 1709, which was like, they were the best army in Europe. And the best, Charles XII was one of the best commanders in Europe. So that was an amazing achievement. But it took took over 20 years to win the Great Northern War. So that gives you an idea of a perspective over some of the sort of the, the scale of time that, that a Russian ruler, you know, is willing to, to give a war. And secondly, you know, if you look at World War II, for example, in Stalin, in the first year of war, it was catastrophic. I mean, Stalin lost over 4 million men, <laughs> 4 million. Um, he only remained in power, surely, because he'd killed so many people in the terror um, that there was no one to get rid of him. But I can't think of any other system or any other country in the world where someone would have kept power after after performing so disastrously. But after a full year, he began to improve as a commander, which is something we can talk about, you know, we can talk about. But um, but it's just worth remembering. And I'm just saying these as sort of, I, I actually don't think that Putin is Stalin. I don't think he's as capable as Stalin. I'm not sure he is ever going to improve as supreme commander. Um, it was an interesting, it was an interesting thing. There was a sort of, there's a sort of almost a clear moment in, in World War II when Stalin goes from just sort of constantly ordering massive counterattacks on all fronts at the same time when he suddenly learns that this, that this just doesn't work and he becomes, he, he, he gathers a team of really capable people, Zhukov and Vasilevsky, the two, his two kind of top commanders, both of whom he kind of likes as people as much as Stalin can like, well, and he certainly trusts them and he realises that they're extremely capable and there is no equivalent of those two, as far as I can see in Putin's um, entourage at the moment. There's no Vasilevsky and Zhukov, you know. Um, and, and it's pretty ironic that Stalin, even Stalin managed to find these two, these two rather brilliant commanders. I mean, they are Vasilevsky and Zhukov, really the two greatest commanders of World War II, without a doubt. And then he begins to sort of, he begins to learn late in 1942, after, after just untold disasters, um, on a scale that no other no other state has ever weathered, he suddenly starts to understand a little bit more about about commanding, which is unusual in a six you know man in his six you know, di- old dictator in his sixties. And of course, Hitler was going through exactly the opposite journey, having started taking advice. You know, he then he then after France after nineteen forty began. He thought he was a genius, and he would he needed no advice from anybody. Um, and, and got worse and worse as a, as a supreme commander. So that's part of it. So what I'm trying to say is it's possible, it's possible that the Russians could still surprise us um, and gain some sort of limited victories, I think. But, but I, think it's, I think it's hard to reverse it. I mean, this isn't World War II. This isn't, this isn't the Great Northern War. But I think we could get some nasty surprises, you know, in the war. I mean, one parallel that we've, or, or at least one big difference with the Second World War that we mentioned on the podcast a couple of times, Seabag, is of course, Stalin at least had the advantage of Western economic military might on his side. And this, you know, is not to be underestimated, as, as we now know with a lot of recent scholarship. It's different here, isn't it? We've got a situation where Russia, which is slow, as you say, always slow out of the blocks militarily, 
it's lost a lot of men already. Uh, It's hard for me, which is why it's so interesting talking to you with this sort of much broader perspective. But it's hard for me to see, it's hard for Patrick and I to see this turning round for Russia. But I suppose your broader point is it will be in it for the long haul and possibly China will come to the rescue. I mean, they're not going to go anywhere as far as negotiations or a humiliating peace, are they? No, I mean, I think the Chinese aspect is 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 very important because they really could send a lot of military aid and um they have got massive massive material they could be their america if you like for you know to reverse completely the parallel i think that you know i mean another aspect which we you know we, we all know that sort of over 200,000 russian soldiers have been killed which is a massive amount um for the 21st century but you know, we don't know the, the, the numbers of, of Ukraine. I mean, they must be smaller, but they must be massive too, even though Ukraine is a huge, has a huge population. Um, so, you know, this is punishing for both sides. And um, I, mean, I do think that when we look at this, we've got to sort of say, you know, what, what's going to happen? Well, part of it could be that, you know, Putin will gain some limited advances and victories. But ultimately, when people say, do you think Ukraine can win? I, I think Ukraine can win. It could win. And I think it could get a total victory. I don't know if it could get Crimea. I don't think it should try for Crimea unless they know they can get it. Because to screw up in Crimea, you know, would be would be a major disaster. But I think Ukraine could win with the right weaponry. Um, I mean, they've obviously got sort of really, really sophisticated commanders and very, you know, very impressive, you know, very impressive tactically and strategically. But the thing is, that's the best option. And that would be that would be quite something. But I think more likely, and you know, we don't believe in telling Ukraine, you know, what they should do and when they should negotiate. But a frozen conflict of some sort is more likely, um, in which you know people often mention the Crimean, the, um, sort of the, the Korean Peninsula. When I think, because I've written a lot about the Middle East, I think of 1948-49, you know, the, the sort of armistice at the end of the Arab, the first Arab-Israeli war, when mm-hmm. the borders sort of became the borders of the country internationally recognized. And that's why the war is important, because Ukraine, I think, is it may not ultimately get all the complete Ukraine's, the, the Ukrainian Republic, all the, all the territories back, but it will end up with, with territories that probably will be negotiated uh, about and will become, you know, will become the shape of Ukraine and the, the Ukrainian, hopefully the prosperous, independent Ukrainian democracy and EU member in the future. So that's that's very important. You know, one interesting aspect is if, if Ukraine um, really does defeat Russia properly, totally, which which I think is possible given, you know, given that given where we are and if they receive all the weapons they've been promised and more, if that happens. Then that will bring down, that will destroy Putin somehow. Um, but total defeat is the only thing that would do it. A frozen conflict won't. You know, will keep Putin in power, and he may be in power for for another twenty years. You know, and the conflict would then be a frozen conflict that that flared up all the time whenever either side felt strong enough, um, like the Arab-Israeli wars. But if they if they won a full victory, uh, that would be hard for. Um, the autocrat Putin to to weather that, and I think that he would be then he would then be removed by his own people. It's unlikely in Russia to be um, a popular rebellion. Now, ultimately, it's normally even if there are, even if there were protests, no sign of them yet. They were very small the protests at the beginning of the war, but it, 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 even if there were protests, usually in Russia these coups that take place within the Kremlin within the palace. And they are they are normally kind of um, pulled off by the closest associates of the ruler. And a possible replacement for Putin, Seabag. I mean, who are the most likely uh, candidates? I think it it would be someone that we've never heard of. I don't think it. You know, I don't think it would be. If you look at the sort of the, the top people now, I mean, there's a tiny group of them. We know very little about the relationship with Putin. Um, the way things are going, he may well be. You know, he may well be absolutely fed up with all of them and talking to totally someone totally different. You know, one's just got to realize how little one knows, in a way, of what's happening, and one's. And I think one's got to recognize that. I think, like you know, there's constantly sort of almost tabloid articles um, rehashing lists of people um, by so-called sort of Kremlin experts, um, and 
where they're kind of rehashing kind of lists of people from 10 years ago who are supposed to be the kind of inner side. There are very few experts that actually know anything that's going on. There are about three of them. Um, and and we should listen to them and not listen to all these kind of hoary old experts who don't, don't really know what's happening. Seabag, tell us who they are, because we, I know you've been following this closely and you've made this point to me privately before. I think the best is Mikhail Zigar and Andre Soldatov, for two of them. And, you know, they're deeply impressive. Galliotti is good. But then there's a whole lot of, there's a, there's a whole lot of sort of, you know, people who, who really don't know, the, you know, who the hell they are. I mean, Shoigu, um, the, the defense minister who wasn't really, who wasn't really a military man at all and is, you know, Putin's oldest ally from the nineties and has been in government, you know, since Yeltsin has turned out to be a flop. And, um, you know, I, I always compare him to Voroshilov in, in, um, in Stalin's court, who was sort of, the, the, the defense minister, the war minister, defense minister, who was an enormous bungler and was just, and Stalin was deeply irritated with him. It was him who dropped the Stalingrad sword um, in that famous scene when Stalin handed him the, the, the Stalingrad sword and Voroshilov dropped it, which tells you a lot about him. Stalin was deeply irritated. And um, so, you know, and then you mentioned people like Patrushev, who's like old um, Solovchik sort of tough security person. Obviously, obviously a top advisor, but you know who knows who's up and down. I mean, his son is often mentioned as as a as a successor, but actually it will be someone completely different, just as it was when they chose Putin um, in the in the nineteen nineties. You know, no one really, no one, no one thought of Putin as a successor. But that's the nature of Russian autocracy: is that there's no succession plan, and literally we've gone back to a position where. The ruler chooses his own successor, rather like Peter the Great did. We've had some pretty good interviews on this uh, podcast, haven't we? So, but for me, that was that was a really outstanding one. It was a fantastic historical foundation for our understanding of, of why we are where we are, and a great starting point for trying to define where we go next. One of the most striking things to me was the observation that Seabag made a very important one that Putin has got really no ideology you'd think that having grown up under communism and been a beneficiary of the system this would shape his political thought to some degree uh, but no I mean he's, he's obviously not interested in the ostensible social aims of communism equality etc uh, as is obvious from the way he's let uh, crony capitalism rip under his rule but Really, he's only interested in, in in the Soviet Union in the sense that it it was a great vehicle for increasing and projecting Russian power. So that's really what he's on about. He can admire both Stalin and Catherine the Great alike. And his core beliefs are centered around what Seabag says is a rather grim and dreary self-centered nationalism that it excludes all non-Russian influences and, and probably would have appalled um, Catherine the Great and Potemkin. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it, that the the history matters to him in so far as, as you put it, the power politics of Russia, Ru- Russia, how it's seen in the world, the determination to to get its place in the world. It, it was interesting his reference to the Western leading. There's always been this kind of sense, and we heard it, uh, you know, in our interview uh, a fair while back about the idea that, that Russia faces east and west, and some rulers go west and some go east. But what, what Seabag points out so effectively is that even when they're looking west, it's really only as a means to getting their hands on western technology. It's not because they admire western culture. And that's the first time uh, anyone on this podcast made that point. And it's crucial, isn't it, really, to understanding the mindset of, of Putin and his cronies. Also, a rather chilling backward look at uh, 2014 and uh, saying that, in his view, Putin missed a trick there. And if he'd invaded the whole of Ukraine, then rather than just Crimea, he might well have got away with it. And then looking forward, he doesn't really see necessarily um, any weakening of resolve on the, on the Russian side. Part of that's illustrated, of course, in the way that they really don't have any qualms about throwing thousands and thousands and thousands of men into, into sort of pretty pointless uh, military operations. And of course, as he points out, that's got a long history using uh, soldiers as cannon fodder. 
Now, I've, I've been thinking about this interview, Patrick, and, and I, I've come to the conclusion, which I'm sure you have too, that one of the reasons why it's so thought-provoking uh, and he's raised so many more interesting points than we probably imagined he was going to is because he studied Russian rulers, hasn't he? You know, I, I mentioned in the intro, you know, pretty much all his books. He And even his book, The World, was, you know, was called A Family History. It's about dynasties, and that's what fascinates Seabag. It's the characters who get into these positions and how they manipulate and how they wield power. We we couldn't really be talking to anyone better for an understanding of Putin. Um, were we getting any <laughs> any interesting insights into where it's all going to go horribly wrong? Well, there was one actually, Patrick, and that you know rather encouragingly, he said that all Russian rulers uh, and Russian uh, military enterprises take time to get going. Um, he, he talked about Peter the Great and Paul Tarver, eight years, of course, all the catastrophes at the beginning of the Second World War with Stalin. And generally speaking, they were able to turn things around, Stalin in particular, because he stopped micromanaging and started letting some very capable generals, Zhukov and Vasilevsky, as uh, Seabag mentioned, uh, take over uh, and really do the job. He, and, and this is encouraging if you're pro-Ukraine like most of us, he can't see any likelihood that that's going to happen with Putin anytime soon. So the chances of a Russian victory, that was my one big takeaway, encouraging takeaway from this, are vanishingly small, but it's slightly more concerning as to how this might all end. Yeah, there don't seem to be Zukov's wait, waiting in the wings uh, in the Kremlin at the moment. So, as you say, um, that's uh, grounds for optimism. On the other hand, he's saying that uh, probably if he's asked to look into his crystal ball, the most likely outcome is a frozen conflict with Putin staying in power for, he said, 20 years. What a terrible thought that is. Uh, in the same breath, he did say he didn't rule out a Ukrainian total victory so let's let's hang on to that yeah great stuff okay patrick well i think we'll let seabag speak for himself and not and not delve too much into the bones of all of this it's been a long and absolutely fascinating interview and a sign we hope of things to come our new format two programs a week the interview today which i think we both feel has gone pretty well that's all we have time for now but do join us on friday when we'll be discussing the latest news and answering listeners questions goodbye goodbye